Hello there and welcome. I'm James. I'm the pastor of the Glenwood Moravian Community Church here in Madison, Wisconsin, and you have found The Essentials, a place for us to explore our faith, to talk about what's going on in the world, and to hopefully celebrate some good news that we see out there. For this episode, I have our lessons and our message from Sunday, February 4th. The first reading came from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 21 through 31, and we'll be using the message translation. The scripture reads, Have you not been paying attention? Have you not been listening? Haven't you heard these stories all your life? Don't you understand the foundation of all things? God sits high above the round ball of earth. The people look like mere ants. He stretches the skies like a canvas, yes, like a tent canvas to live under. He ignores what all the princes say and do. The rulers of the earth count for nothing. Princes and rulers don't amount to much. Like seeds barely rooted, just sprouted, they shrivel when God blows on them. Like flecks of chaff, they're gone in the wind. So who is like me? Who holds a candle to me, says the holy? Look at the night skies. Who do you think made all this? Who marches this army of stars out each night, counts them off, calls each by name? So magnificent, so magnificent, so powerful. And never overlooks a single one. Why would you ever complain, O Jacob? Or whine, Israel, saying God has lost track of me. He doesn't care what happens to me. Don't you know anything? Haven't you been listening? God doesn't come and go. God lasts. He's creator of all you can see or imagine. He doesn't get tired out, doesn't pause to catch his breath. And he knows everything inside and out. He energizes those who get tired, gives fresh strength to the dropouts. For even young people tire and drop out. Young folk in their prime stumble and fall. But those who wait upon God get fresh strength. They spread their wings and soar like eagles. They run and don't get tired. They walk and don't lag behind. Our gospel lesson is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. Directly on leaving the meeting place, they came to Simon and Andrew's house, accompanied by James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed burning up with fever. They told Jesus. He went to her, took her hand, and raised her up. No sooner had the fever left than she was up fixing dinner for them. That evening after the sun was down, they brought sick and evil afflicted people to him, the whole city lined up at his door. He cured their sick bodies and tormented spirits. Because the demons knew his true identity, he didn't let them say a word. While it was still night, way before dawn, he got up and went out to a secluded spot and prayed. Simon and those with him went looking for him. They found him and said, Everyone's looking for you. Jesus said, Let's go to the rest of the villages so I can preach there also. This is why I've come. He went to their meeting places through all Galilee, preaching and throwing out the demons. Here ends 
the reading of the word. One of the necessary steps in seminary towards becoming a pastor for me was to take a class called CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education. In other words, chaplaincy work. You can complete this in a variety of settings, but I found myself in Pennsylvania at the Reading Hospital between my second and last year of school. And over the course of the summer, I had a floor that I was assigned to during the week, and mine had patients who were recovering from shoulder, knee, or hip surgery, pretty basic things. But you also take turns as the overnight on-call chaplain for the entire hospital. And this was a daunting task for us interns. This was a huge hospital, and Reading is a difficult city. It sees a lot of crime and drug-related trauma, and the four of us, the interns, we had led pretty sheltered lives to this point. My first shift that I was the on-call chaplain was easily the most extreme. It took being thrown into the deep end to another level entirely. We worked from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m., and wherever there was a need for a chaplain in the entire hospital, your pager went off and you had to show up. So as I got going, I went to the trauma bay a couple of times. One person had been stabbed. One person was hit on the head with a tire iron. And while they were pretty startling cases, they were pretty quick. You ask if they have family that you'd like, that they would like you to contact. You ask if they need anything. And when they both said no and seemed content, there isn't much else for you to do other than to give them their space. Following those two, I had a few more routine visits around the building. But then another call brought me back to the trauma bay once again. A 22-year-old crashed his motorcycle. He arrived to the hospital in the ambulance, but unfortunately died almost as soon as they got him into the building. When I found the doctor who called for a chaplain, he told me that the EMTs weren't able to find any identification yet, so they don't know who to call. But there was a family gathering in the waiting room because their son just crashed his bike. And they assumed that this was the family of the 22-year-old, but the medical team couldn't share any information with them until they found an ID. So a long process began of this family just waiting. They couldn't get any updates. They couldn't go see him. All they could do was wait. After that short debriefing, the doctor essentially pushed me into the waiting room and ran the other way. As I introduced myself to them, I could see their immediate disappointment on a few levels. They first were disappointed to see that I wasn't a doctor. I didn't have any medical updates. I couldn't confirm that their son was here. I think for them, even worse than me not being a doctor was the fact that I introduced myself as the chaplain. And you only assume the worst when the chaplain shows up. And the response 
I got from the family was the mom saying, quite harshly, we aren't very religious. I think it was her polite way of saying, you can get lost. And as much as I wanted to run away, to take that invitation, not knowing what I was doing, that little bit of intel I got from the doctor was the fact that I needed to stick around. This was a big one. So I had to stay. And I did. I was there when more family showed up. First his girlfriend, then his grandparents, then his aunt and uncle. I was there when they confirmed to the family that in, it indeed was their son. And as they broke the news that he didn't survive his injuries. And I stayed as they waited once more to go back and view his body. They didn't want to go without his sister. And she was driving in from three hours away. So I led them back to see him. And then when the time came, I walked them out to the parking lot to leave. They got to the hospital that night at 10 p.m., fearing the worst, but maybe holding on to some hope. And they drove away at 4 a.m. with their lives destroyed. And for those six hours that I spent with them, I had absolutely no clue what I was supposed to do. Not even in a lack of training type of way, just with this overpowering feeling that I have nothing to provide here. What are they going to gain from my presence? How do they benefit from me being there at all? And I felt more and more useless with each agonizing minute as I realized there's just nothing that I can do for this family. I can't fix this. When the family left, I returned up to our spiritual care office, and as soon as I got through the doors, I literally just fell to the floor. I was heartbroken for them. I was exhausted. But mainly, I was just so overwhelmed that I was supposed to serve some sort of role in a situation like that. I've never felt so helpless. Like what I was doing didn't matter at all. There was just nothing I could do. Nothing would make those moments any better. So then why was I some random side character on the worst night in these poor people's lives? I don't know if I've ever had a panic attack, but I think there on the floor of the office was as close as I've ever been. I was distraught. Physically, I was feeling unwell, and I just lost all sense of hope to cling to. So in the next few days, I tried to be present with the patients that I met. But I couldn't shake this feeling that their day wasn't going to change, whether the chaplain checked in with them or not. I left every room feeling like I just wasted their time, like I had nothing to give to the people that I was meeting. 
About three weeks after that on-call shift, our supervisor got an email. It was from the mom of the bike crash, the one who I felt wanted me around the least that entire night. And she was reaching out to thank our supervisor, to thank all of the chaplains for the work that they do at the hospital. She explained that she recently spent the entire night in the emergency department after her son died, and the chaplain never left her side. He got water, he got coffee, he tracked down doctors, he listened in the chaos, and then when the time came, we followed him to go say goodbye to our son. She said she didn't really know what chaplains did. She thought that they would just pray or read to you from the Bible. But really, they're there to make sure you aren't alone. And that's what she needed that night. We see Jesus heal, cure, or help people many times throughout the Gospels, but the experience that we heard in our lesson from Mark is one that really stands out to me. Because many times he is driving out a demon with a powerful and direct voice, or sometimes he performs some sort of ritual or has a specific touch, and through his power, the person is well again. And these moments seem to highlight his divinity, these otherworldly actions that he is capable of. But here, with Simon's mother-in-law, there isn't any of that. There's no showmanship. There's no magic words. We see that she is in bed with a fever. Jesus goes to sit with her, and he just holds her hand. That's it. He's present with her when she is in pain, and his presence makes a difference. He is simply present. And that alone is healing, it's holy, it is life-changing. And what I didn't understand that night in the emergency department what I still underestimate sometimes today is just how powerful our presence can be. To just be with someone. Even when you know you can't solve their problem or fix anything for them. When you know there's no combination of words that's going to make this right. But you stay with them nonetheless. I think we can get so obsessed with finding results, or we're driven by some sense of progress that we long to see, and when we find ourselves with nothing that will make things better, we can panic. And we're convinced that we have nothing to offer if we don't have a solution. And that mindset, the mindset that I had as I wanted to run away from that waiting room, it drastically undervalues how important 
human connection is. Sometimes there is infinite worth in just knowing that you aren't alone. And that's the comfort we receive from Jesus. His presence truly with us no matter what we face in this life. There to hold our hands when we hold our breath. And when you have the privilege, the honor to offer that same role to someone else, to be there when there isn't a solution, to be there when hearts are broken, when you get to share that sacred space. Don't underestimate the value of your presence. Even if it's uncomfortable and unbelievably difficult, even when your mind is telling you that this is all pointless, stay. Be there anyway. Because when you bring the gift of not being alone, you bring the gift of life. Amen. Well, I appreciate you stopping by and listening to another episode. I hope you are well this week. You can find out more about the church that I serve, the Glenwood Moravian Community Church, by checking out our website, can follow us on Facebook. You could worship with us on YouTube as well. If you want to know more about the Moravian Church in general, you can go to moravian.org. So take care. I'll catch you next time.